Born and raised in Greenwich Village and still living there today, Donna Florio has amassed a collection of tales about her life on Bank Street. Over the years, she's encountered a large cast of characters, from Sid Vicious of Sex Pistols fame, to John Lennon and Yoko Ono, to activist and politician Bella Abzug. But her new memoir, Growing Up Bank Street, also shares heartwarming and fascinating stories about her lesser-known neighbors, like Tish, a female impersonator who became a lifelong friend. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Donna is our guest on this week's Cityscape. Donna, thanks so much for taking the time. George, thank you for having me today. So let's start off with a little word association. What word comes to mind when I say Bank Street? People, uh, stories, um, liveliness. You were born and raised on this street. I showed up here as a baby bump. My parents were uh, living in a studio apartment so small that they had to stick their feet under the piano when they pulled the, uh, the studio couch out, which probably contributed to me being made, but didn't seem like quite the place to raise the actual baby. So uh, yes, we, they moved in when they were pregnant with me. Mm-hmm. 325 square feet. That's a tiny apartment. Oh, massive. Well, you know, it was a it was a village. When I was born, mommy was an opera singer. She was singing at the uh, Amato Opera. Daddy was a director and lighting designer, also at Amato. Baby was portable. She took, got toted or long. But honestly, and this was the case for all of my life here with them, we were all on theater schedules. So it's, it was actually a rare day, except for maybe Sunday nights, that we three were in the apartment at the same time. Dad would run off to the Brooklyn Academy of Music and mom would be up at the Met and I would be home doing homework. And then I'd be up at the Met and mom would be you know, at the Met and dad would be who knows where. So it worked, <laughs> is all I can say. <laughs> Don't ask me how, but it worked. What was it like for you to grow up in the theater environment amongst the opera? Well, looking back now that I have hindsight benefit of uh, being in more traditional neighborhoods, more, more traditional parts of the city and uh, different parts of the country, I can honestly say it was sort of like being a child of the circus because I didn't know not everyone's mother was sitting around in you know full grease paint after a dress rehearsal going, you know, and, and other people's fathers weren't wandering around with a score lighting. He would light the living room like he was planning to light up a stage. So I never knew what I was going to walk into in the living room. Um, so it was, it was very vivid. My parents were vivid and exotic, but in case I thought that was strange, there were Annie and John Friedel, the opera singers on the fourth floor and their daughter, Irene, and there was Auntie Mame across the street, who was more vivid than everybody in the street put together. So I didn't know that we weren't quite mainstream America. You say that the Friedel's apartment was your second home growing up, huh? Very much so. Um, it was physically the same apartment, uh, complete with a little girl who got uh, the bedroom and parents sleeping on a pullout couch in the living room and everyone singing opera. Um, it was a lot more uh, stable in some ways than mine. My parents' marriage was um, very loving, but also very, uh, at times, acrimonious because they were both having uh, frustrations professionally, okay? And it was when things just got too lively downstairs, I could always flee upstairs and 
stay there. And it was still eccentric. It was still the opera world. But it was like having an aunt and uncle and a sister, a little, uh, an older sister, who just, it was safe up there. You were also close with a female impersonator who lived on Bank Street, an impersonator that went by the name of Tish. What was special about your relationship with Tish? <laughs> well, okay, I arrived in 55. Tish Touchette um, arrived in 1957 with his white poodle, Albert. And I have to tell you, since I love dogs, that Albert was really my first attraction to Tish. Um, my impression of Tish, and this was as I was very young, was that I was not quite sure if he was a boy or a girl. Now, bearing in mind, I was four years old, you know, when I was, and I kept asking my mom, is he, is he, is that a boy or is that a girl? And she would finesse the question with, oh, look at that pretty dog. Go say hello to Albert. I mean, she just wasn't going there. Um, so as I got older, I just always saw Tish as a neighbor. <laughs> I remember once we were in the, um, we were in the Van Gogh cleaner, uh, dry cleaner around the corner where we all went and Tish came in with these stunning handmade hand sequin costumes. And my mother is just looking and you could just see the envy drinking right off her face. She's going, oh, I love those costumes. <laughs> And then as it went on, Tish became a friend because Tish was in, online behind me to get, you know, tomatoes at the, at the grocery store. And we started chatting. And that's when he told me about his nightclub act, his female impersonator. And we became friends. And we stayed friends. I'm going to tell you that, that from 1957, Tish left us all about five weeks ago. Wow. And I was friends with him right up until the end. You are still on Bank Street. Yes, I am. Tell me about Rainy Saturdays with Mrs. Swanson, another one of your neighbors. Mrs. Swanson, who was in apartment 2A, to next, literally next door to us, um, had she and her husband had been um, a vaudeville touring uh, team. They did exhibition ballroom and vaudeville dancing. And I, I, don't, I don't think he was alive by the time my parents moved in, um, but... She had this magnificent, one of those big touring trunks that stands up sideways and opens up so that you have ha costumes hanging on either side of it with tiaras and jewelry and things. On a rainy day, Mrs. Swanson would go downstairs with me and we would open the trunk in this dingy little dark uh, storage room that the tenants got to use. And we would open it up and she would let me pick out a costume and then she'd give me a feather fan and she'd give me a tiara. And our, our pre favorite pretend was that I was a flapper dancing on the deck of the Titanic as it went down. And I've, I had to have my tiara. So this flapper usually had one eye closed because the tiara was slipping over her nose and her eye. But I was going to keep my tiara on, thank you. And she, gave, she taught me that Charleston or some, some approximation. I, I just remember doing the sidekicks, feeling very fancy. And she'd be standing there going, pretending to be the musicians who are playing as the waters rose and we were about to all die. And it was... It was a very, very satisfactory way to spend a Saturday. Mrs. Swanson would complain about communists downstairs. Now, was that just a term she used for neighbors she didn't like, or were there really communists downstairs? Mrs. Swanson was lucid until the day she died, okay? And she was crystal clear to my parents. Um, I was about 
eight or nine when she died. She was, she was crystal clear that in the 1940s, the, quote, biggest communists in the United States, unquote, had lived directly downstairs from her in apartment 1A, and that the FBI used her apartment to spy on them, okay? So um, later on in life, fast forwarding to me and my, um, I don't know, my, uh, maybe 20 years ago, I thought about that and I called my parents and said, am I crazy or were there commies under Mrs. Swanson's bed or what? And they said, oh, no, no. She was always telling us that. She was very clear that it happened. She wasn't a figure of speech, so on. That got me started on the biggest communists in America who in her time, the 30s to the 50s, was the Browder family. And I dug, I dug, I got a key to it from uh, James Ryan uh, at Texas A&M, who wrote the definitive book on Earl Browder, who's the head of the party, because I couldn't find them, not in census records, not in rent roll, nothing. And he said, oh, yeah, they were there, but they were there under assumed names. And he broke it open for me. It wasn't for Jim. I wouldn't have had the story. 12 pounds of redacted FBI files later. I had the absolute proof that she had known exactly what she was talking about. They were here. Not only were they here, not only were they having loud, wild parties, but they were, in addition to being the head of, he, um, Earl was the head of the National Party. His brother who, and his wife who lived here, William Browder and Olive, were the heads of the New York State Party. Brothers-in-law, sisters-in-law, Earl's lover, then his ex-lover, but they're still working together, so on later, they were not only living there, they were also in the 40s, right there, conducting the biggest Soviet Union espionage ring in the United States, right under the FBI's noses, literally under their noses. Incredible. All of that happening at 63 Bank Street. Yes, sir. How many secrets did you uncover at 63 Bank Street that you were unaware of growing up as a kid? Oh, Lord. Okay. Well, there was certainly that one. Oh, let's see, 63 specifically, or can I enlarge it to Bank Street in general? Let's expand. Okay. All right. Well, staying at 63, I discovered that Grace Bickers on the third floor, when I was um, perhaps 10 years old, I'd always known her my whole life, out of Tennessee Williams, beautiful, tiny woman, uh, perfect fingernails, always done hair, done soft page, beautiful camel hair, swirling coat, stilettos on her feet, even in the snow. And I discovered one day when she'd had a stroke and was unable to get out that she was a hoarder and that her entire apartment, you're talking about 325 square foot apartments, her entire apartment was a labyrinth that was so densely packed that even I, age 10, couldn't get through to her. She was probably 80 pounds and I had to crawl. The cops picked me up and put me on top of stacks of newspapers and I had to crawl over and hold her hand while they cleared out the newspapers and um, enough to rescue her and get her to an ambulance. Another story I uncovered was that there was a lovely, beautiful, genteel woman named Stella who sat next to my mom in the Abington Square Park around the corner that had a, a, a little sandbox and some dented old baby swings. And I discovered that Stella, who my mother called Abington Park, Stella was in fact the widow 
of Judge Joe Crater, the man who disappeared in 1930 with international headlines and sex scandals and political scandals. And she herself was pretty shady. Let me tell you, I discovered she was there. All right. Another thing I discovered was that Yeffy Kimball, the Native American artist in one of the brownstones, living there with her husband, Harvey Slater, an atomic physicist who helped invent the atom bomb and then became a peace activist. She, Yeffy had a very prominent career, very prominent as an artist. She was at the Whitney and MoMA, and she was, uh, as a Native American, she was lobbying for Native American rights and handicrafts, and there was only one small problem. Yeffy was no kind of Native American nothing, okay? She was, in fact, yet uh, Effie Goodman, a Missouri farm girl, and just made up this incredible persona and sold it. She sold it to the major museums of the world. She sold it to the Native Americans and, and, and Congress uh, to whom she testified, okay? She pulled it off, let me tell you. What inspired you to look back on your life on Bank Street and investigate further the neighbors that were amongst you? Several things. Um, one is that I was always the nosy kid who would go to my neighbor, George Bedarsky, and say, where'd you come from? What did you do? What was your, like, like, your life like growing up, George? I was, I was the one who pestered everyone. Um, in my uh, family, I was the grandchild who poured the extra big glasses of wine for my grandmother when no one was around and just happened to always have a tape recorder saying, Grandma, what happened back in Sicily in the 1890s? And I got all the dirt. My, my father's like, my grandmother, my mother didn't say that. Oh, yes, she did. Here, I played for him. You're kidding me, right? Um, so that was the beginning of it, just being interested in people. The other thing was that given the peculiar uh, social situation we were in, peculiar in that I was much more involved in people's lives on the neighborhood than I probably would be to, in today's environment or that I would be been in, in a place other than Greenwich Village, okay? I just got to see and hear a lot more, okay? Now, fast forward to 9-11, um, my day gig uh, was, and I loved it, a, a helping children with handicaps and, and working with uh, children with disabilities. And that's what I was busy doing, minding my business on 9-11, except I was in a school with horror, high up in a building, very high views. We were locked down and I ended up seeing everything and basically having, um, I guess you'd call it a breakdown for the next several years and being confined to my apartment because I was just too fragile to go out. So I started thinking about the neighbors and writing as a way to get out of my own head and out of my own life, which I certainly didn't want to be in either of at that point. And then I started asking them and I started calling my parents and saying, is this true? Because they'd left the apartment by then. I had the apartment. And, uh, and so it went from there. So Bank Street helped you to get through a very difficult time in your life. Not only the stories, but people who were here still, people I'd known from childhood, like Marty Braverman, who I'd help, I'd learned to, to walk by pulling myself up on his Alaskan Husky dog, and people like that who would literally come over with food, walk me to doctors, sit with me. Okay, so it was the story and contribute their stories. It was not just the stories of the past. It was the bank streeters of the present who got me out of it, too. 
I was going to ask the question, how well do you know your neighbors today? Um, you know, the, the one thing that I have to say is I don't live in the past. New people come in and I'm just as curious about them. Okay. So I know them very well. Right below me in apartment 1B, these, I call them the fabulous taco boys. Okay. Three energetic young Californians showed up mm, 10, 12 years ago. Bursting with energy, they're going to turn New York architecture on its ear and, and be the next best things. Well, um, they have, but not quite as they saw. They also realized that we, what we didn't have in New York were the kind of roadside tacos that you enjoy in the border towns of California. And they said, they're just the people who are going to bring it to us. And by George, they have, they have Los Tacos number one. And my crazy neighbors, have, I don't know if they now got five, six, seven stores. I don't know what, okay. They're still my crazy neighbors, even though they're, they're grown up young men in their thirties. Um, and lovely new young neighbors just moved in last month next door. And uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And, and, and the, the delightful young man up in the fourth floor is working with Korean skin products. And, you know, I know that I'm now the senior of the building and they say, oh, you know, you knew John Lennon. Da, da, da. And I tell them, you know what? You know, people I'll never know. You have energies and talents that this crowd and, and I never had, never will. So you know what? It's up to you to make your own bank street. You dropped the name John Lennon, and you also dropped water on the head of John Lennon. What's the story there? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> the story is Don has made a fool of herself more times than words could carry. Um, okay, so someone had meant, we're now in like 1969, 70. Someone had mentioned, oh, you know, John and Yoko are living here. Well, you know, I was in high school. It was all about me, big, big deal. So what? I, it went one in, in one ear and out the other. Um, and it, it just wasn't a, an event in the village. One Sunday morning, we had window boxes. And uh, on good weekends, such as the one we had, we'd put them outside and let the flowers get the full sun and we'd water them. And so the house didn't get messy. So I was out on my fire escape, standing up on the fire escape with a watering can. It was a Sunday morning, very early. And I was leaning over and I was watering the plants. Okay. And all of a sudden I looked over and there's this, you know, you can't mistake John and Yoko. You just can't. That's who they are. And I'm seeing them and they're just wandering down Bank Street and they're about to come below me. And I was I was like, oh my God, that really is them. Look at that, that really is. And I kept leaning over, forgetting that as I leaned over with my body, the watering can was leaning over with me and finally it tipped and I literally poured the entire watering can on them. Like I couldn't have planned it better if I'd tried. I got them both bad, okay? And they both looked up and, George, there might be someone who can maintain their savoir faire when they've just dumped water on a beetle. But trust me, I was not that person. So I just stood there staring. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm dead. I don't know where. Please, God, take me now. Please, please. It's my moment. And I just, oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm so and Yoko kind of looked up and gave me a dirty look and kept walking. I really didn't blame her. I mean, I, I would have given me a dirty look too. But I just stared at John, who was saying, and he kind of smiled, which was very gracious. And he said, it's all right. No worries, no worries. And he shook his hair. And, and I mean, he's, he's, he's 
wet as hell. He looks like a wet dog. And I went, oh, oh. And he just kept walking and walked away. And I, I, you know what, George? I was so embarrassed at 14, I think I was. I didn't actually tell anyone else that story for 10 years. Wow. It's a great story, though. I'm glad you're sharing with us now. (laughs) Sorry, Yoko. I apologize. I really do. (laughs) Another musician who came to Bank Street was Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. Did you know him? I did. I did. Okay. So by that time, uh, through circumstances that I'll kind of just go quickly... I was in apartment 1A. My grandmother had moved in when I was about eight. Grandma got uh, brain cancer. I basically was living down there to help her. We kept her at home for as long as we humanly could. Um, I turned 18 being down there, which by the laws of New York at that time meant the apartment was mine. Okay, so here I am 18 with my own apartment. And uh, Michelle, who uh, had inherited an apartment from her grandmother, is in apartment 1A and I'm in apartment 1B. So here are the two granddaughters, all the same age. And my friend Andrea moved in with me. And so she's from the village. So here is Michelle, who's a beautiful woman, but a very different style. She was very punk. She did leather jackets and, you know, dramatic, uh, uh, you know, cl- styles from CBGB and the Mud Club. Andre and I, we were the glam queens. We were all about regines and Bette Midler. You know, we were very glammy. So Michelle got a boyfriend and she introduced him one day. This new boyfriend's name was Sid Vicious. Sid I did know, had just come out on bail from uh, being accused of, I said accused of, not tried and convicted ever, of killing his uh, girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, up at the Chelsea Hotel. So, you know, Andre and I were sort of, hmm, kind of dicey choice for a boyfriend, but okay, it's her business. And the four of us, you know, they were across the hall there, and we were across the hall here, and sometimes we would meet on our way out on Saturday night and they were all done up in punk rock glam. And we fondly thought we were done up in uh, our version of Uptown Studio 54 glam. And we'd wish each other a nice evening and go our separate ways. And that was it. Until one early morning in February, 78 or nine. And um, I had to get up, Andrea had the flu and she woke me up and said, please go to the drugstore, get me something. And I had no coffee in me. I was 20, 21, whatever I was. I had, I had my Coke bottom glasses on and I walked out the door with my eyes closed and all of a sudden light bulbs were going off in my face and, and microphones. And I didn't know what the Sam was going on. And that's how I learned on camera that Sid had overdosed on heroin and died next door. Wow. Wow. Activist and politician Bella Abzug was also a neighbor how did she influence your life? Well, um, I shout out to Bella, baby. You know, as an American woman, um, I have more freedom. I have more power. And she herself was a personal example of don't take anything lying down. Get up and get yours. Uh, that said, as a neighbor, she was a, as I wrote in the book, a two-legged nuclear power plant. I mean, I've ju- she just emanated power. She emanated it, okay? Uh, and, and I was actually afraid of her because she just was too much for me. I was being a little girl. Um, she was not too much for my father, who ironically 
shared her political opinions. He was uh, ardently pro-civil rights, ardently pro-gay rights, and wanted a clean environment and so on. It, the problem was she was a pig-headed, feisty, snarling, street smart, street smart first-generation Russian Jew. Dad was exactly all those things, first-generation Italian, and their styles were too much alike. So trying to watch these two conduct a civil neighbor conversation was like trying to watch East polarized, West polarized anti-matters trying to get together and get cozy. They just exploded at each other every time, every time. Earlier, you referenced Auntie Mame, Marion Tanner. She lived on Bank Street. She was a neighbor. What did you learn from her? My Auntie Mame. Uh, Marion Tanner, whose nephew, uh, Patrick Dennis, uh, Everett Everett Tanner III, Patrick Dennis, um, wrote a book called Auntie Mame, 1955, the same year I arrived. Marion had been in Bank Street living in her brownstone as a young socialite from the 20s when I met her. She'd become a committed Buddhist sometime in the 30s and had decided that her mission on this earth was to save souls one soul at a time. So she broke the locks on her door of her beautiful, elegant brownstone, and she welcomed in anyone, okay? She was my babysitter. My parents, in their infinite bohemian wisdom, thought that a house full of, by the time I got there, 30 to 50 lost souls wandering around in various states of inebriation, sleeping under her piano, sleeping in the closet with their feet sticking out, or in very mentally fragile, was a good babysitter. But you know what? They were right. Auntie Mame taught me that I am a divine flame from the universe. And if she taught me nothing else, but she did, she taught me that I am a divine flame from God. That's quite the lesson, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, to stay fabulous, because what she was a weathered lady in her 50s when I, but, and, and, but she could, she did yoga. I mean, the woman did like three, four hours of yoga a day while her soups for all her guests were simmering. And she could, she could drop and do a split, George, faster than any 15-year-old you ever saw. Stay fabulous. You also had a nudist as a neighbor, right? One that you probably wouldn't recognize with clothes on. Sure did. Never saw him with clothes on. How would I recognize him? From little days, um, we were in 2B and... Mr. Benson was in apartment 1A before my grandma. Big, he looked like Tweedledum and Tweedledee in my Alice in Wonderland book. He had this big belly and these little toothpick legs. And I, who, you know, what was I, a foot tall, two feet tall, looking straight up, I guarantee you he had a big belly and toothpick legs, okay? He had been a Shakespearean actor, actor of some repute, I may say, according to his reviews, in the 20s and 30s. He spoke three languages. Um, we didn't care so much that he was always naked, and we knew that because we had the, the hallway radiator book swap, and we were always, everybody was, he was always waddling down his little saggy buttocks, jouncing, to um, lay his copies of the New York Times down and then pick up the latest book, whether it was Art Forum or Edgar Cayce, because we weren't having enough exciting lives here, George. Everybody had second and third reincarnation lives, God help us. And he'd be bowing back down. I never saw him with clothes on, like ever, ever, 
okay? Um, but what I did see, and everyone saw, which really excited their admiration, was that we got the New York Times, the trucks would pull up around the corner at the store about, let's say, 7 p.m. Saturday night. They would deliver it. He, with all his erudition and his languages, would grab the New York Times crossword puzzle, pull out a pen. George, the men nailed the New York Times crossword puzzle in ink in an hour. And then he'd very, very, very carefully bounce down the hallway to our hallway swap and stick it right on top where no one could miss it. And no matter what else he put out there that night, that crossword puzzle stayed on top, honey. We knew that he knew that we knew he'd gotten it again. Donna, what do you hope people take away from this book, from reading these tales of folks on Bank Street? First and foremost, whether it was uh, actor Jack Guilford and his wife Madeline being pulled in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 50s and uh, defying them and refusing to pull anyone else down with them, or anti-mame seeing during the Great Depression, seeing all the oppression around her and all the degradation and wishing to save the world. And West uh, Bell Labs down on the river, where they invented a few things you may have heard of, like the telephone, talking pictures, binary computers, okay? The stories of the people of Bank Street are the stories of America itself. Donna, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you, George. The book is Growing Up Bank Street. The author is Donna Florio. And that's all the time we have for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening.